Second <clears throat> Peter chapter three. Let's go to verse ten, if you will. I'm backing up a little bit. I realize, but if you're physically able, will you stand with me as we read from God's precious word? For the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, you therefore beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. That's the word of the living God. Thank you for standing. Um, <clears throat> we could, this, this, if you want to look for something that's relevant, shame on those who, who, who are in the church culture that um, spend all their time trying to make something relevant that already is. And in so doing that, become irrelevant. Our, our, our longing for relevance in our culture has caused us to compromise to the point where we're irrelevant. Isn't that strange? But the day of the Lord is coming. And we said, it's coming as a thief in the night. And we looked at some practical truth that He lays out here that if all these things are going to happen, and they will, and the elements are going to melt with fervent heat, and they will, and God's going to uncreate the creative order we see now and bring down a brand new one. And that's all going to happen. And that's all going to be dissolved. Then the question is, or the statement really, it's a statement, what manner of person ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? And we talked about the fact that that means how astoundingly excellent you ought to be. And he says, you know, what? doesn't that beg the question? We should be those who are holy in conduct and godliness in our orientation. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Knowing that our godliness is not going to hasten it. It's just it makes us more aware uh, and makes us more anticipated. To the point where we long for it. Because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. We went through all of that. Nevertheless, we, <clears throat> according to His promise, <clears throat> because Jesus said, when He left this earth, He was coming again. We have His promise. We stand on it. Look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we talked about that last week. That praise God, hallelujah, through the blood of Christ and His substitutionary atoning, death, burial, and resurrection, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. Through His resurrected life in the believer, as He conforms us into the image of His Son, we are being delivered from sin's power. And that in future glory, we have to look forward to that we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. Hallelujah. And that's the ultimate aim. That's it. 
That's where we're headed. That's what's true. As a matter of fact, it's true now as far as God's concerned because He sees it as a done, finished work right in front of Him because it is a done and finished work. And then He says again and highlights again, therefore, beloved, and you remember, Andrew and I were talking about that this morning. This is a favorite word of Peter. That word, beloved. Because in two epistles, two short epistles I might add, he uses that word eight times. Beloved. Understand. I think, I think Peter used that word so frequent because it meant so much to him. Peter, who had denied the Lord three times. Peter, who took matters into his own hands. Peter, who had a rebuke and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Right after he had made a great confession to the Lord. And that word, beloved, probably meant a lot to him. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's becoming to mean a lot more to me. That we're loved of God. Beloved, listen, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace. You know what that reminds us of? It reminds us of where He started the letter. He started the letter, you remember. He said, be diligent about this. Don't be lackadaisical. Don't be half-hearted. Don't be, don't be apathetic. Be diligent about these things. And look how He started the letter. Isn't that what He did? We went through this line by line, principle by principle. But look what He said. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he also said, For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, we, he says in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. You do these things, you won't stumble. You do these things, you won't fall prey to the shenanigans of the false teacher. Because the false teacher's greatest candidate is immature believers. That's the greatest source of recruitment for a false teacher. Those who have not yet grown in, the, in their relationship with the Lord, maybe they're new believers, or maybe they're believers and have been for a long time, but there's been little or no growth. There's been no paying attention or heeding, heeding to God's Word. And they fall prey. And, and Peter says, listen, let's return back to that. Be diligent about this. Tend to your walk with the Lord. Tend to matters of faith. Live an examined life. Don't just meander through things and be concerned about other things besides where you and I stand with the Lord. And he said, Beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace without spot and blameless. We said last week, Beloved relationship, found in peace without spot and blameless. Fellowship. What he's saying is this, Christian, make sure, do you have the relationship? If so, Make sure you're in fellowship. This is one of the divine graces of the power and the intended purpose of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper every week is God's call to His people, we His people, to make sure, are you in relationship with me? If so, are you in fellowship with me? If so, sit at my table and enjoy this meal. I want you to enjoy it. I don't want to, I, hey, I'm not trying to keep you distant. I'm trying to bring you near. And the Bible says that, that draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. In salvation, we return to this theme. In salvation, He seeks you. In sanctification, we seek Him. And He's saying this is one of the divine graces of the table. Are you, are you in relationship and are you in fellowship? If so, 
Your life's going to be different. And we looked at the fact that it said without spot and blameless. Without spot means character within. Blameless means reputation on the outside. That's what it says. When it says without spot and blameless, without spot, inward character. Blameless, reputation. Without spot, who you really are on the inside. Reputation, who others see you to be on the outside. Be diligent about those things. And consider that the long-suffering <clears throat> of our Lord is salvation. Let me challenge you with this. By the time you go to bed tonight, if Jesus has not come back by tonight, and He could now, but if He didn't come back tonight, just lay down on your bed, and before you go to bed, remember that the reason He didn't is because He's still bringing His people to Himself in salvation. Have you ever thought about that? Here's what he's saying. Don't fall into the trap of those who gloss over the return of the Lord and the judgments to come and think that the reason He did not come is because He's not going to. Lay down tonight and reflect on the fact that the reason He didn't come is because the Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when we get to the end of the day, we don't go, He didn't come. Or look at there, He didn't come. I can just live like I want to. No, we go, Lord, You didn't come because You're still calling people. That's why You're doing it. Because see, this is what the false teacher does. The false teacher willfully forgets that. He willfully forgets that. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want to remember that. Because if he does, that means he's got to deal with judgment to come. The pathology of the false teacher is none other than this. Suppression of truth and unrighteousness. You don't look forward to judgment if you're living like the devil. A person's lifestyle highly influences their theology. It does. And he's saying, look, if we make it by the end of the day, let's try to remember before we lay down our head a bit. God did not come back today. If He didn't come back, <clears throat> not because He's not going to, not because He's slack about His promises, He didn't come back today because somebody somewhere is about to get saved. Hallelujah about that. Praise God. Hallelujah. And it might be somebody I'm praying for. Or it might be somebody I get to witness to. I love that. God's in the saving business. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. God is glorified when a dirty, nasty, rebellious sinner destined for hell is cleaned up by the blood of His Son. He is glorified thereby. And shouldn't He be? The fact that I'm sitting here this morning and you too is God's being glorified by the fact that you and me, apart from Christ, ought to be in hell right now. Right now. And if it weren't for Him, we would be. As also our beloved. Here He goes again with that beloved stuff. Aren't you grateful? Man, I'm telling you right now, I love Peter. Our beloved brother Paul, the one who publicly rebuked him in Galatians, he must have got over that. The Bible says, a fool will hate you for rebuking him, but a wise man loves you for rebuking him. But Paul rebuked him. Can you imagine Paul rebuking one of the twelve? That was bold. Paul didn't lack for boldness. I can tell you that right now. Go read Galatians. He did it publicly in front of everybody. Instead of resenting that, what does Peter call him? Beloved brother. Appreciate that, Peter. Thank you for reorienting me. 
Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. According to the wisdom given to him, he affirms he was an apostle, has written to you, as is also in all his epistles, speaking of them of these things, of which some things are hard to understand, which some which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the Scripture. Did you know that there are some who promote a gospel that say they believe in the red letters but not the black ones? And there are certain prominent issues that are not spoken to in the red letters and they are in the black letters and they say because they're in the black letters they have no validity. I didn't make that up. Just because Jesus didn't address it and it's addressed in the black part, it must not be holy writ. Now we have Peter saying it's holy writ. See, all the letters are read to be read. Written in red. The blood of Christ. He affirms that here. That's important. Paul's writing Scripture. 13, possibly 14 of the 27 books of the Old Testament, New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. And they're every bit as inspired and they're every bit as from the mouth of God as the Gospels are. And I get the sense that he's probably talking about the hard things to understand as end time teaching. It doesn't say it's impossible to understand. He just said it's hard to understand. And the false teachers would contort and twist so they can somehow or another suppress the truth and unrighteousness by dousing down the fact that judgment and end is coming when we know it's coming. Why is it that even pagan writers write books and make movies about the end? You ever thought about that? You know why? Because they know through what? Conscience and creation that it's coming. What do they do though? They pervert its end. Think of the number of movies that have been made. Prominent movies about the end of it all. You know, and the speculation that goes on from pagan people. So we willfully forget. And he says that he twists those things around. And look what it says. It says, Paul, by the way, was already in heaven when this was written. And all his epistles were already written when this was written. So he's affirming it's there, it's in there. Okay? Christ is coming back. The business people will tell you to plan with the end in mind. Jesus says, live with the end in view. Live with the end in view. It's coming. Judgment that climaxes with the return of Christ to the earth. Untaught. People who lack information. And unstable. People who vacillate with their spiritual character. You ever notice that? Never satisfied. Never satisfied. There's always a spiritual itch to scratch. Never satisfied. It, nothing's ever enough. Christ is never enough to them. The Scriptures are never enough. It's always got to be some sensational new packaged branding or something else. So it's not just untaught people. It could be that. They lack information. Or it could be that they're taught but unstable. And they twist things around. The Bible says they distort. You know what the picture of that word is? It means a body on a torture rack. Like that. Arms and feet bound. 
being twisted and contorted in, in unnatural ways. And they contort the teaching of Scripture to settle us down so that we're not concerned about things. And we just get concerned about puny things. Things of this life. Earthly orientation. And we don't worry about the rest of that stuff because it just gets in the way of things. And then He affirms the rest of the Scriptures. But look now, look in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, you know better, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Steadfastness means firm footing. You stand on firm footing. Don't be a spiritual sensationalist. Rest in Christ and His finished work. We're not waiting for something yet to be done. We're anchored in something that's already been done. He's enough. He's a firm footing. The Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Steadfastness. This was written by an apostle who before the Holy Spirit came inside him and indwelled him at Pentecost, was anything but steadfast. Here again we see the grace of God. He could have given examples of his erratic behavior. Don't be spiritually erratic. Given here and yon, this and there and the other. He knew something about how important it was to be steadfast because before the Holy Spirit came inside him, he was very unsteadfast. He gave a witness. He gave a witness to Christ and His identity in Matthew chapter 16 and then turns right around and argues with God about His death on the cross and why He was headed there and we'll do something about it to stop it. He says, don't wash my feet. You will not wash my feet. And then Jesus says, well, let me tell you this. If I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. And then He says, well, wash me all over. See? Don't wash me now. Wash me all over. Not just the feet. Now everything. And Jesus said, no. I said I'm washing your feet. He said, I'll defend you to the end. You can, you can take it to the bank. When all these other goober heads around here run, I've watched them. I've been with them long enough. They're not near as strong as I am. I'm the spokesman. And they'll cut and run, but not me. And what do you do? They cut and run. Do you see how erratic he was? Bing, bong, bam, bing, ba, 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 like that all over the place. He was. And then he writes, there'd be a good place if he was in the flesh to go into all that. And he didn't. I did. Shame on me. But just to prove the point, thank God because of the blood of the Lamb, he didn't go into it. Why? Because he'd been forgiven. But, in order to appreciate His call for steadfastness, I think we can better appreciate His call for steadfastness when He understands from His perspective how badly He knew we needed it from His own personal testimony. Steadfastness. Steadfastness. This is why we do the Roman study. The Bible says, He said this, here's what He said in Romans 1.11, He said this, I'm writing to you so that you may be established in your faith. Steadfastness. Not some, not some undisclosed truth somewhere out there where somebody goes, ah! Steadfastness. 
established. I want you to look at 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 30. Steadfastness. He said, be established. He said the same thing right here. But look what it says in 2 Kings. This is one of my prayers. God gives me a bunch of prayers for you in this fellowship and for me. And this is one of them. I want you to look at it. 19, verse 30. This is my prayer for you and for me. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah, watch this, look at this, shall take root downward and bear fruit upward. That's a great prayer for your family. Lord, may Your Word take root downward in my life so that fruit upward is born. Because let me tell you something right now. If the the Word doesn't take root downward, there'll be no fruit upward. And if, if there's, you can't have it that way. But God, would you, in Robert's life as my brother in Christ, would you take root downward in his life so that you bear fruit upward in it? Why? Because God's glorified thereby. Established. Established. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 11. This is the reason why we do the Romans study. Romans 1, 11. For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gifts to you so that you may be what? Established. Established. Listen to me, dear ones. The Bible says that deceivers and imposters are going to grow more and more. He says that's going to happen. And our guard against falling prey to them is to be established in Christ. To take root downward so that there's fruit upward. Established. Same word, by the way, Second Peter. That word is translated from the English, the Greek word from which established comes from. The same word in Peter. Now we got Peter and Paul. The apostle to the Gentiles and the apostle to the Jews saying the same thing. Look what it says. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Please. Second Peter 1, 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things that you know and are established in present truth. Take root downward, yield fruit upward. Take root downward, yield fruit upward. Take root downward, yield fruit upward. Take fruit downward is not to just stay there. It is to yield fruit upward. But you cannot yield fruit upward until the Word takes root downward. Be established. And he says it right here in the face of this. Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. Be established being led away with the error of the wicked. You will be led away unless you're established. The present truth. Established. Because lawless imposters and wicked men will grow worse and worse, the Bible says. It will happen. What do we be established and grow in? Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say this to you? You grow in grace without knowledge and you'll be a part of the license to sin crowd. You grow in knowledge without grace and you'll be a legalist. Grow in grace and knowledge.
When you grow in grace and knowledge, then you understand the proper understanding of grace. And the proper understanding of grace is, it's a doorway to holy living. It is an incentive to live holy because of the gratitude that you have between the difference between what you deserve from God and what you're getting from Him. Amen? Growing in grace is a strange thing. We have preconceived notions about that. Do you know how God grows you in grace? And I? In part, He does it through suffering. How about that? How about that? How often do we misinterpret suffering? We go through bad times and we kind of resent the people that we think are causing it. We kind of resent everything around us and we make excuses and we hold on to our bitterness and anger thinking that we have a right to hold on to it. Because once you think you have a right to hold on to bitterness and anger, you have completely lost sight of that. Because that strips us of every reason to have it right there. Right there. And if we hold on to it in front of that, then it means we're not in front of it. I can promise you that. We've not taken a fresh look at the bludgeoned brow of our Savior and the blood that was coming down from it when we nursed that. We've soon moved away from it. We've departed. We've got our eyes off of it. We need to get our eyes back on the cross and the resurrection that follows. Grow in grace. We're strengthened in grace. Look at 2 Timothy 2, 1-4. 2 Timothy 2, 1-4 if you will. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to endure, will be able to teach others also. And look at this. How do you grow strong in grace? Endure hardship as a soldier of Jesus Christ. See, the reason that Paul is saying to Timothy, grow in grace, is because God's going to put him in situations where he feels like he's not graciously being dealt with. And if you don't grow in grace, you will resent the very thing that God's using to conform him to the image of your son. Growing in grace. Suffering in the middle of God's will. Now wait a minute. Not as an evildoer. The Bible says don't suffer. If you suffer as an evildoer or a busybody or a gossip or a divisive person or whatever, if you suffer because of that, don't rejoice in that. But if you suffer as a result of being in the middle of God's will, leap and jump for joy. Because that is not cast down on God's grace. It's evidence of it. It is divine favor because it is that God uses. So grow in grace. Understand something of grace. Do you understand in this room right now that grace is a divine concept? Grace is a divine Truth, grace comes from divine God. It is otherworldly. It is not in this world. It came from the other world and came through Jesus. Grace and truth through Jesus. And to understand grace is a supernatural thing. And God's got to undo our understanding of what grace is in order to give us a real understanding of what it is and use suffering to do it. He uses the grace of giving to do it. You ever thought about that? Look at, uh, look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He said, grow in this grace.
But as you abound in everything, verse 7, but as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. What is the grace? Giving until it feels good. Sacrificial giving. Grow in this grace. Grow in this grace. Because understand this. Jesus Christ, who was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. Grow in this grace. Grow in the grace of rejoicing under trial. Do the best you can. Do the best you can. And contort your lips. Anyway, it might be contortion at first. Force it at first, maybe. But grow in this grace. That when you want to scream out and cry out, No! In the middle of what's going on around you. Cry out, Hallelujah! Praise God! Hallelujah! And I'm going to say hallelujah till it feels good. And even if it doesn't feel good, I'm still going to say hallelujah. I have a right to say hallelujah. Because my God's sovereign. I have a right to say hallelujah. Because the tomb is empty. I have a right to say hallelujah. Because He granted me repentance and faith. I have a right to say hallelujah. Because the Holy Spirit lives inside me. I have a right to say hallelujah. Because I have a fixed, sure hope that's more sure than anything you'll ever know or I'll ever know apart from Him. I have a reason to hope. I have a reason to shout. I have a reason to rejoice. Because they're all based on the promise of God. And so hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It changed. Grow in the grace of suffering. Grow in the grace of rejoicing in the middle of it. Look at Colossians 3.16. It's a grace to grow there. 3.16. Don't resent what God's doing. Celebrate it. 3.16. Let the Word of Christ Dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. My in-laws' pastors, uh, pastor, I knew very well, or pretty well. And uh, he and I became friends before he died. And he suffered with cancer for a long time. I mean, a long time. And matter of fact, he asked me to preach for him one time when he got at his worst, just before he died. And I'm up there preaching, and he shows up. He's not supposed to be there. I'm like, what are you doing here? You come up here and preach. you got more to say to us than I do. And we, boy, the Lord broke out that night, didn't He, Jill? I mean, boy, I'm telling you, right? it was amazing. I, I could go on about that. Nonetheless, he shows up, and he's in the middle of all this pain. And he died about two weeks later. And, and he and I were talking one time, and I said, you know, if I was on a desert island, and I had nobody else except me, I've just come to love the book of Romans so much. It just, it's just like swimming to me. I never tire of it. And, and, and uh, I said, if, if God took all 66 books and said, you only get to keep one, I'd pick Romans. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, that's good. That'd be a good choice if there were people to witness to, but there's not. So he said, I'd pick the Psalms. And I've reflected a lot about that. And I thought, you know where he got that from? In the middle of his suffering. In the middle of his cancer, knowing he was going to die, he was praising God. All the way to the end. Hallelujah. I picked Psalms too, I think. Desert Island. I'd stick with Romans if there was somebody there to witness to. <laughs> Alright, now watch this. So here we go. It's established. Because see, listen, listen. Grace and knowledge are a beautiful combination. Knowledge without grace puffs up. Grace and knowledge build up. The Bible says that. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. The grace of God, hallelujah, that brings salvation has taught us holy fear and service to Him till He comes. Praise God, hallelujah. He's coming again. Amen. And look, grace and knowledge, to Him be the glory both now and forevermore. And after that, we all say, Amen.
I've told this story. I've told this before. I got blessed this morning. Me and Andrew were uh, on our way. I got to share this to you. I told Andrew, I said, this is going to make it in the message this morning. I'm so grateful I heard it. And, uh, and so until we come, here we are. We've got this opportunity to say, uh, get the lifeboat. The earth is coming down. He's going to destroy it with fire. Get in the lifeboat. God sent a lifeboat. His name is Jesus Christ. And here's the way. There he is right there. This is something I learned. R.C. Sproul. I really respect him, uh, Dan. We were listening this morning. And for some reason or another, we were on a radio station. It must have been, we must have been picking up a radio station in, you know, in Utah. I mean, because I've never even heard it. And we're sitting there and he just happened to be on there this morning. And he was preaching about the shepherds. And he said, the shepherds. They, 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 the angel said, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Joy! God is going to make good on His promises and He's coming. And He's coming here, not just live a nice life to model yourself by. He's coming because He's going to die on the cross. And the very sheep that you're raising, you won't have to raise anymore. Because they won't have to be, there won't be any temple sacrifices anymore. They'll be over with. Because God sent the Lamb. He's coming. Go see Him and tell everybody. You know what they did? They told everybody. They told everybody. You know why? Because they had good news. And you know what he said? Sproul said this this morning. Boy, it was a blessing wasn't Andrew. I'm t- I said, Andrew, good, not a lie. That's a cat head biscuit from the griddle of glory. He said this. The, listen, I want you to listen to this for a minute. The only way, I'm paraphrasing, the only way in this life that you can increase the joy you have over your own salvation is to declare it to others. I'm done. Bye. <laughs> Jill told me one time, she said, you know what? The happiest I've ever seen you is when you're sharing the Gospel. And I look back on that and I reflect back on it. And that's true. That's true. I'd rather do that than eat when I'm hungry. Because I want people to know. Hallelujah! You can know God. You can go to heaven. You don't have to go to hell. And apart from Him, that's where you're headed. But God did something about it. Think about that. On earth... The only way to increase your joy... Now, I would go further than that. I would say the way to get to that point is to get to a point of joy over your own salvation. And when you get to the point that you are joyful over your own salvation, the only way to increase that joy on earth is to declare the gospel to somebody else. That's a cat head biscuit from the griddle of glory. It is. God will it. That's not the last time I'm going to say that. And boy, hallelujah, we got these opportunities. And it fits right in with this, this right here. The long suffering of our Lord is salvation. If we make it through the day, whatever your plans are, what are your plans today? If you make it through the day and we lay our head to rest, we'll say, God, the only reason you didn't come back today is because you're still still holding out and giving people an opportunity to repent. <laughs> Hallelujah. Aren't you proud of God? That's, a, that's an irreverent way of saying it, but I'm proud of Him. I've heard, you've heard me share this before. Sir Ernest Shackelford, on Saturday, August 18, 1914, embarked on a voyage with 29 men in a three-masted wooden ship to go from Plymouth, Plymouth England, to Antarctica. He was, going to be the, he was going to try to be the first person to ever cross Antarctica on foot. He put an ad in the paper and it went this way. This is how it read. 
Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. And 28 people responded to the ad and went with him. Who sets out to build a house without counting the cost? You're going to follow me and deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's Jesus' ad. And you'll drive a Mercedes and live in the biggest house and have the biggest pocketbook and you'll have no trouble at all. And if you do have trouble or sickness, it's because your faith is weak. Is that what he said? Is that in the Bible? No. To you it has been granted to suffer on the part of Christ. That's what it says. The leader... Sir Shackelford was a real leader. He worked hard among the men and he earned the title as serving them as the boss. They called him the boss. The ship's name, appropriately enough, was Endurance. That was the name of the ship, Endurance. Boy, that's cool. In January 1915, it was entrapped in an ice pack and it sank on a flat, free-floating Slice of sea ice was their home. He kept them busy every day. They would ration out the food. They played games. They would make sure the camp was swept and clean. They did whatever they had to do. If you had to send them on something, you had to make up something to get them to do, he'd make it up and kept them busy. And then on April of 1916, the ice that they were floating on broke apart. It started to break apart. And before it completely broke apart, they wound up at an island called Elephant Island. And at that point, Shackelford and five others of the crew members started what would be an 800-mile journey in a 22-and-a-half-foot lifeboat to go get help. 800 miles. rest of them stay there. His second in command was a guy named Frank Wilde. And Frank picked up where the boss left off. And he kept them busy. They would shovel away snow drifts. They'd have sing-alongs. They'd gather around and have sing-alongs on the middle of the ice. Here they are freezing to death. Time's running out. Boss is gone. And they're singing. Yahoo, Dore. You know, I mean, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and here they are. And they compete with one another. And they have competition. They go out there. I can just see them out there. Somebody throwing a snowball at Eric, trying to hit him or something. And him trying to get out of the way. And they would listen. And when chunks of the ice would break off, sometimes it would sound like a gunfire going off. Pow! Pow! And every time one would go off, they would go, could that be him? Could that be Sir Shackelford? Has he come back? Has the boss come back? And see, God is sending us shots all the time. Just reminding us. He's coming back. He's coming back. The boss is coming back. The boss is coming back. They got down to there where they had four days worth of rations. And one day, in the fog, a Chilean icebreaker ship broke through the fog and had on it Sir Shackelford and those five men to rescue them from sure death. Every day, Frank Wilde would say, Get your things ready, boys, because the boss may come today. 
get your things ready, children. Because your Lord may come today. I don't mean we sit around and twiddle our thumbs and go, woe is me. It means we're busy. We gather around the campfire like the worship team led us this morning and we sing. We sing. And when the rations get down low, we sing. And we play games. And we are engaged in the Gospel. Because see, listen, to here's the key to all of it. Wilds, cheerful anticipation improved infectious. Whether he believed the boss was coming back or not, he made them believe it. And that kept their hope alive. Now, if these men, recruited by a human being, can have that much resolve to hang on to a situation in which the odds were overwhelmingly against us, what could the church do with a God who not only didn't leave us and went into the fog somewhere, but lives inside us and the Holy Spirit. And He's speaking to us and saying, get your things ready because He might come back today. Roll up the sleeping bag. Clean up the tent. Keep it clean because He might come back today. We're going to the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is this. often as you drink this cup and you eat this bread you remember my death till I come roll up the sleeping bag because the Lord may come